0: You are listening to Something Rather Than Nothing, creator and host, Ken Volante, editor and
1: producer, Peter Bauer. All right, this is the Something Rather Than Nothing podcast, and this week we have Dr. Erin McDonald, who is an astrophysicist, and she's a science fiction consultant uh, currently for the Star Trek uh, franchise. Uh, She's the host of the online series Dr. Erin Explains the Universe. Her specialty is in general relativity, having previously worked in the LIGO scientific collaboration searching for gravitational waves. She has since found her home in science fiction, consulting with writers, teaching STEM through popular culture, and fulfilling her life goal of becoming a Warp Drive expert while living in Los Angeles. Uh, she is the tattooed Scottish American N7 Slytherin rebel from Starfleet. Welcome, Doctor Emory McDonald.
0: <laughs> Thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here.
1: Thank you so much. Uh, like I like I had mentioned to you before. What a great introduction you've written, succinct and to the point <laughs> and powerful. <laughs> um, I, in this podcast, I always start off by asking, "What uh, what were you like?" Uh, Dr. Aaron, as a as as a young child, uh, were you, were always, or, or when you were young, were you doing experiments, or what were your interests?
0: Yeah, you know, I think probably inquisitive is the best way to summarize what I was like as a child. I was definitely that kid that got told to stop raising their hand in class because it was disruptive to the flow of teaching sure. and answering every single question i i cannot abide silence when a question is asked and um so so that you know that was kind of me but I was interested in science. I I was drawn to it. I loved it. But I also, I loved reading. I was big into dance. And so I definitely had that full, like, left brain, right brain interests that, um, you know, I was able to fulfill both of those passions. So I would go alternate between my science clubs or watching, you know, Bill Nye the Science Guy and then go to dance class or pound through a, a novel few years above my age group. And I mean, I was Hermione is probably the best way to <laughs> summarize what I was like as a kid. Um, Hermione from Harry Potter was definitely someone I related to a lot. <laughs> and, uh, you know, talkative. And I always tried to have a good time. I was a little bit oblivious to the social mores of trying to make friends. So there was a little bit of uh, loneliness. But, you know, I had my fictional worlds. And I'm very happy that I've been able to make a career in a life that's brought that all together.
1: Yeah, and I've noticed that about your uh, about your biography, and uh, you know, it, it 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 is really fascinating to see yourself. Obviously, you know, um, doing research and you know, uh, having a doctorate in you know investigating science, but also um, the you know also the creative component of being able to consult as far as science fiction and kind of like that interaction between science uh, and science fiction. And it sounds like that dynamic is something you've worked with for quite a long time then, right?
0: Yeah. And it's, it's been a journey because I pride myself in being able to do both of those things, to be able to think scientifically as well as Uh, think creatively. And there's always a lot of crossover with that, but it's actually resulted in it being kind of my biggest struggle getting into this field was because so many people have worked with science consultants in the past when when they were needing some science background for their stories. And they found it to be kind of a negative experience because the scientists weren't respectful of that balance between getting the science right versus telling the story they want to tell. And that's something I, I pride myself on. And, and I've been able to kind of slowly push my way through in the industry and make a name for myself as, you know, people, these writers vouch for me. And I'm so grateful for that by saying, no, she's like, she's respectful and she will help you with that creative side as well as the scientific side. Um, but that's yeah, there's not that many of us out there.
1: Yeah, it's it's it is. And I know we'll get more into it. That is a, a fascinating in, interaction. And um, uh, but what I'm going to start off with is uh, a, a really big question is, uh, Dr. Aaron, why is there something rather than nothing?
0: That's a really big question, (laughs) and I know it's the the theme of the podcast, and not being a philosopher, but coming from a science background, and particularly astrophysics, I think astrophysics is one of those fields that does try to answer this, and you do find these sort of big-picture, open-ended questions in very rigorous scientific fields a lot. For me, I... You know, my succinct answer to why there's something rather than nothing is why not? And uh, why, why else would we be here if there wasn't something rather than nothing? But due to the randomness of our universe and maybe universes beyond that, we are here. Now, scientifically, something that crops up a lot in cosmology, which is a field in astrophysics, Is trying to understand not necessarily why there's something, but why there is more something than anti something. (laughs) (laughs) Because we've discovered that there is antimatter in our universe, and we have our fundamental particles like the electron, which I think a lot of people have heard of, has a negative charge. Well, there's an anti electron that we call the positron. And when an electron and a positron meet, they have evaporate each other essentially and just turn into light and so cosmologists are trying to answer that exact question of well why isn't everything just light why wasn't there an equal amount of matter and antimatter at the beginning of the universe that all just obliterated itself and you know we resulted in a in an imbalance in that and The fact that that is a question that we as humanity is trying to answer scientifically with evidence by building telescopes and taking data and trying to figure that out is mind-blowing. I always joke that astrophysicists live in a constant state of existential crisis because (laughs) we're just constantly reminded how random the universe is and how small we really are. Um, But, you know, my, my answer is why not? There's randomness, kind of dictates our entire world, and I love that.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. And but I will say, Aaron, I'm not gonna reformat the podcast to the uh, more something rather than anti something (laughs) podcast. I'm gonna stick with what I have for now. I think that works. I think that's more sensible. (laughs) Um, my my next question um has to do with uh, the connection between. Um, You know, your science, the investigative process uh, in science and also the your your creative process or your consulting process around um, creativity, Um, basically your work process in in both realms. Can you can you tell listeners a bit about how you conduct your research or or maybe how you consult uh, on a movie or TV show regarding the science that's being presented?
0: Yeah, you know, there it's very different ways of thinking. And when I was a researcher, I left research about, gosh, over six years ago now, about six years ago. And... I wasn't, I enjoyed doing research. It's a different kind of mindset. And this is something I try to tell people, especially young people who are thinking about going into the sciences. My grades were not spectacular. I mean, I was a solid B student and it was very competitive, but I learned that just getting good grades doesn't necessarily translate to being a good researcher. And in physics, it's so important to think out of the box there's an element of creativity to research in that you are having to push the bounds of human knowledge and figure out how to do that. Now, if you have good mentors and you have good training, you're guided in that process to build that mindset, but it really becomes a creative problem-solving mindset. And when I left academia, the thing that I learned was, having been a researcher in theoretical astrophysics, On paper, I didn't look like I had a lot of job opportunities outside of doing research, but I had been given the tools to problem solve very quickly, very effectively, and to really get to the root of what needed to be done. And that served me very well. I worked as an aerospace engineer for a few years after that and was really able to translate those skills. However, when it came to storytelling and the creative process and working with writers, the mindset there is you have to learn to let go of a precise explanation. I think that's the hardest part for scientists starting to work as consultants, but storytellers in general, and learning that sometimes you're better off by just not explaining something than trying to explain it too well. And then it becomes burdensome in the dialogue, people start to lose interest, or you get so far down a rabbit hole that you've lost your grip on science as a whole, and none of it makes any sense anymore. So you're better off just leaving it as like, this just happened, and we're not gonna try to explain it because trying to is just gonna get us in more trouble than just being vague about it. And that was probably the hardest thing for me that I constantly am coming up against when a writer comes to me and says, hey, I've come up with this like cool idea for, you know, let's say traveling between multiple universes and I want to try to help them explain it properly. Sometimes it just gets overly complicated and you lose track of the story. And so learning when to step back, and especially as a science consultant, advise them to not make it scientific is difficult to do. But I think they appreciate it. For me, now having made this transition and working as a science consultant, I have really just fallen in love with the creative process. We talked a little bit about what I was like as a kid, but... Another component of what I was like was I was so into movie making. I just loved love movies. This was when they started releasing like double VHS sets of movies that you could see the behind the scenes stuff, and I would I would watch those obsessively. I had that behind the scenes of Jurassic Park memorized, (laughs) and and, um, for me, being able to peel that curtain back and see how things are done has made me realize that you know I we all have that creative soul inside of us. And for years I've been asked why I don't write science fiction myself and I would respond by saying, I'm a terrible writer. Well, I was a terrible writer because I had it set in my mind that you approach writing in a certain way. And anytime I had tried to do that, it just never worked. But seeing all of these different writers and, and learning the medium of screenwriting and how some people approach it like just pen to paper, let's start writing, versus others who come at it from a more, let's start with an outline, let's start, you know, build it from the ground up. Learning all these other people's processes made it more accessible to me and made me more comfortable dabbling into it myself and starting to get grow my interest in that, which has been really exciting.
1: Yeah. I um. I, and I appreciate your explanation in, in touching upon, uh, you know, the the processes at play and kind of your approach and problem solving around them, right? Because you have the science part of it. You have writing, right, where you have preconceptions of, of how to write. But I think you probably stepped back and kind of relied a little bit on, you know, balancing those things and using other type of skills to be able to create something, um, you know, or help others create things.
0: Exactly. And it's not, you know, when I'm hired and I get asked a question nine times out of 10, it's not something that I can just answer off the top of my head, but they can trust me that I will know how to find it much sooner. And I will be able to translate for them in a way that's better than a Wikipedia page. (laughs) And I would be able um, to uh, uh, filter through the, you know, nonsense answers that are out there on the Internet much much quicker and that's all the skill sets from research that gives the writers the trust in me to do this research because i do get asked that a lot you know when i'm pitching myself as a science consultant some people do it's not that they've had a bad experience with science consultants they just say i don't know why we need you i've been able to write science fiction for a long time and i feel like my science is really good but the point is is that it saves a lot of stress and heartache for a lot of writers by having someone that they can trust to do that quickly and accurately.
1: Yeah, that's 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 a that's a nice piece for them to be able to uh, to, to have. And um, you know, we we we've, we've been building on and, and talking about you know both both science and art. Um, I'm going to move over a bit um, to the to the creative components uh, in art rather than. You know, at the moment, then, I, I think there's so much creativity that you're pointing out um, in, in science. But um, within art, um, you, you know, you work in creating things and, uh, you know, uh, and also consuming, you know, a lot of art and pop art, um, uh, popular culture, uh, TV shows, movies. It, for you, do you have a working definition of art or, or things that you consider to be art?
0: Yeah, I mean, for me, it's a really good question. I really like this question. For me, I see art as the manifestation of the soul in whatever medium you're able to get that out in, whether it is writing, whether it's performing, whether it's dance, whether it's music. You know, we all, I am a deeply, deeply emotional person. I feel emotions very, very strongly. (laughs) I feed off of other people's emotions. Myself, I experience emotions very intensely. I had a friend whose parents, when I was growing up, he told me that if they could translate my emotions into a drug, it would be very powerful and very (laughs) illegal. (laughs) And, um, but for me, I've always had that, you know, why I, continued to pursue dance, even while I, you know, my interest in science grew. And then once I finished graduate school, I'd kind of dropped off of dance for so long, but I got into acting and then now getting into writing side of things. All of those are very effective ways of communicating our inside feelings, like what it means to be a person. We all have something whether it's music or a story or a show or even just you know 30 seconds in a movie that just hit us like a ton of bricks and that's because it it was a manifestation of what we felt and how we connect with people you know i love uh, i think there was a book a few years ago called history boys and there was a quote in that about how beautiful it is to be able to read an author from decades or centuries ago that you feel is speaking to you, like they're reaching through the pages and holding your hand. And I think for me, that
1: really does resonate very closely with me. And so, and, and, and I I just want to point this out. I I think what's, what's interesting in talking to you is, um, you know, there, there is this academic route and you mentioned, you know, you know, in, in dealing with academics or that traditional route, um, but I think there's a way that you talk about uh, science and art and creativity that probably feels different than a lot of people you're interacting with um, in science, right? So you're a scientist, right? We look at your credentials, and you're talking about emotions, and it's like, wait a second, <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I, I never knew that was going to come up with the scientists because the way people perceive that, <laughs> right, 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 um, it, it, and so I really like I, I really like the 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 way you describe that. Um, you know, there just feels like more of a, of a humanness and openness around, you know, around your experience um, uh, that uh, that's enjoyable to to listen to. I'm um, building off your definition of art, uh, Aaron. Um, I, have you know, I, I was lucky enough in college uh, to to even do a deep dive study in uh, science fiction at the, you know, at the college level which really kind of um, exposed me a lot of great science fiction beyond what I had read. Um, science fiction writing, science fiction, uh, pop culture, movies and otherwise have long had it's it's long had this battle as a genre of, you know, looking for respectability or not receiving respectability, even being conceived or, or viewed as being uh, low art i mean what's your what's your take on maybe that history and your opinions about that general assessment that seems to be that seems to plague the genre yeah,
0: you know when we talk about how I mentioned that art is a manifestation of the soul, I think that science fiction still fills that void, but for so many people it's the what you know, I picked this up working as an engineer, so I apologize to anyone listening for this, but it's the unknown unknowns, right? It's the, we're trying to translate our human experiences, but into a world that is not a reference point, that I'm not, you know, when I read a book from the Victorian era that is about the people living during that time, there's still some relatability. And I think science fiction is, for those of us who are science fiction fans we do know and we do understand that it is still a medium to tell very human stories and to explore allegories and all of those things but i think for people who have never got into science fiction they have a harder time understanding that and and i'm speaking purely because this is how i was raised you know my parents bless them like i they Never got into science fiction. I didn't even watch Star Trek till I was really in college because my parents just never were science fiction fans. They were very, my mom's, you know, a writer, my dad's a scientist, but science fiction was never, ever, ever their genre. But my uncle... My Uncle Mike, (laughs) who I think a lot of people would have an uncle like this. My Uncle Mike was a science fiction writer in the 60s. And there was a lot of uh, drug-induced science fiction that he was writing. And, you know, he had his own little self-published sci-fi poem stuff. But that was my exposure. So when it's called, like, a lower art, I picture my uncle and his almost manifestos of trying to translate how his brain saw the world it made more sense to him to put it on other worlds you know and i think <laughs> yeah. that a lot of people get into science fiction because of that because they feel like they don't necessarily belong and they don't see themselves in our society and science fiction gives them that outlet but then that's very not relatable to a lot of a lot of people um but that being said those people who translated their lives into other universes or galaxies or planets or spaceships or, or anything, or, you know, future worlds here on earth, they are still able to make those touch points back to us that pull people like me along for the ride that I, I suddenly am like, Oh, okay. Like I couldn't have come up with this in my mind, but I completely understand where you're coming from. And that's, I, I think there is a hard, few better comparisons than Star Trek you know Star Trek came out in the 60s when the world was really tumultuous and you know 1968 is a crazy crazy year in history and Star Trek you know Gene Roddenberry kind of came up with this and you watch the pilot and it seems like a lot of the quirky 50s and 60s sci-fi stuff that was out there but he was able to connect it so tightly to stuff that was going on in our own world
1: that it really deeply resonated with people. And I want to... I, I, and I love that about Gene Roddenberry and, and Star Trek. And I want to tell you my quickly my my path on Star Trek, which is extremely uneven. And uh, so I was just explaining this to, to somebody. Is I've always appreciated Star Trek, though I've never watched the complete series of any of the series uh i love the newer movies i like the older movies i love wrath of khan i that's it's kind of common uh i adore wrath <laughs> of khan um and uh but now uh picard is on um the, the show kind of continuation of star trek which i adore and i took it on because i'm like i don't have to do the back catalog i can just jump on right now and in in go through that, and I find it just to be an absolutely lovely show, um, uh, and in and, and tremendous. Have you had any, any connection with the Star Trek movies or, or or that show, or what's been your connection with Star Trek?
0: Yeah, so I I had a friend growing up whose parents were into Star Trek, and again, my uncle was into Star Trek, but I never like I said, sat down and really watched it until I was in college. And for me, my strongest memory of really attaching to Star Trek was when you mentioned the new movies, the 2009 film, that first film that they redid came out and the in the Kelvin timeline. And... That came out the night that we all graduated from my undergrad degree. Like, literally, we graduated, and then we went to the midnight showing. We had dinner with our parents, you know, (laughs) and then we went off. And that was my first exposure to Trek fandom. And that's where the world opened up for me, because I enjoyed Star Trek. I understood why people liked it. I have been devoted. I have been a devoted fan of many, many, many things over my years. But... That was the first time I had seen the effect that something like this has on a huge population of people and how it's able to bring people together like a family. And that's when I realized, like, this is my world. And and this is where I wanna be. It's not, and the movie was fabulous. I still, I absolutely love the movie. And just being able to watch it and experience it, though, with Star Trek fans and realizing that I, too, can be part of this, that it's never too late to, to be part of this family, just, oh, I mean, you can't even describe how much my world opened from that point on. And, you know, look where I am now. <laughs> but it's, um, it's just amazing that a show like this has such longevity, but it also is able to create such a social family really.
1: Yeah, I've always loved that. Um, I've always loved that uh, about it. Um, One of the things I was thinking of when you were talking about, you know, the, you know, the kind of accusation of low art with science fiction, and kind of uh, some of the components of like, uh, projection of somebody's experience into science fiction, I was really thinking of uh, Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut. And, you know, the kind of war, it's a war novel, the war experience, but also this kind of um, onto another planet fantasy in order to process that war experience. Right, right. Uh, and I think Kilgore Trout, his alter ego, Kilgore Trout, as the, you know, typical um, uh, or, or the stereotypical uh, science fiction writer at the time, you know, getting his science fiction stories published in pornographic magazines. <laughs> yeah, and, you
0: know, exactly. Where,
1: whoever would listen. And,
0: uh, exactly. Yeah.
1: Um, uh, moving on to uh, moving on to uh, science, uh, one of the things that uh, really interests me as far as your stated research um, into gravitational uh, waves, um, as I mentioned uh, to you just briefly, I, I've, I've done a lot of the science that I've done self-taught, listening well, some of your lectures and and uh, you know programs on television, uh, reading. Uh, Richard Feynman, uh, Brian Greene, the popular series, uh, you know, on on PBS. Um, I am fascinated, deeply fascinated uh, in understanding some content concepts, particularly when those concepts tantalize and are elusive to experts, you know, such as yourself in in science. Um, What I want to ask you about is your research into gravitational waves yeah. And what you know, like what you're looking for and how you go about it.
0: Yeah, I I love 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 gravitational waves, and um, I was so honored to have been part of that research collaboration. And again, I I just to clarify, I am no longer part of the LIGO collaboration. I cannot take credit for any of the amazing stuff that they're doing right now. But my official story is I helped loosen the jar lid. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, but when I was doing it, we still hadn't discovered gravitational waves. I joined the collaboration in two thousand nine. And for those people who don't know, the LIGO Scientific Collaboration, LIGO stands for Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. And gravitational waves are something that Einstein postulated back in, I think, 1915 as a result of his study of general relativity, so the general theory of relativity, where I think a lot of people, you know, people like yourself, who you mentioned, see these sort of pop science stuff. You've seen that bowling ball on the trampoline example for how our universe is shaped and how gravity works, that you can sure. put a bowling ball on a trampoline, flick a marble, it'll flick around there. And one of the things that Einstein did is um, he said, OK, well, what if we change? the mass like what if the bowling ball explodes or what if two bowling balls crash into each other what if there's a change in space-time what happens to that change and so you do the math this is one of the things i love about theoretical astrophysics is you just ask this question then you're like to the equations (laughs) and you go yeah and uh and he you know he took his theory of general relativity and basically added in a perturbation and said, okay, let's just, let's poke the trampoline. Let's just poke it and see what happens. And you propagate this little poke through all of the math. And what you end up with at the end is a wave equation that is, there's a wave there that's traveling at the speed of light. And so what he realized is that when there is a a disturbance to the trampoline, to this fabric of space-time, that disturbance propagates out as a wave, and that wave travels at the speed of light. And so that's there. It's in the math. Einstein said, this is a cool effect that I've discovered, but it's so small, no one will ever detect it. It's such a small perturbation. No one will ever, ever detect it. And scientists, you know, about 20, 30 years later went challenge accepted (laughs) and and started to figure out ways that they could detect these tiny, 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 infinitesimally small ripples in the fabric of our universe, even due to just the biggest, most extreme events, which are black holes colliding. You get two black holes crashing, you know, black holes are these deep, deep gravitational wells and they're very extreme when you look at what they're doing to that fabric and then if you collide the two of them that's a huge explosion and so those are the ones that we have like a chance of detecting or a star explode like a supermassive star exploding and scientists over the years went through different iterations of trying to figure out how to detect these and there's a lot of really interesting stories behind it i highly recommend people look up Joseph Weber, he was sort of the first one who tried to detect gravitational waves using these things called Weber bars off of the um, concept of resonance. So, this idea you know, you run your finger on a wine glass and it starts to vibrate louder because you've hit its what it's called its resonant frequency. Or if you're walking on a bridge and the bridge starts to like sway with every step and every step it gets a bigger and bigger sway, that's its resonant frequency. So, he thought. He could build bars that, when these gravitational waves pass through, it would resonate and amplify the signal, so they'd be able to detect them. Um, however, his background was such that he was a depth—he used to be in the navy and he worked on depth charges—and that instilled this mindset for him that if you see a signal, that's a signal. That, you know, he wasn't trained to think necessarily scientifically, to be really rigorous and have, you know, multiple detections of something before you declare it. He declared these detections left and right. Um, Anyway, really interesting look into the sociology and, and psychology of science there. But scientists later moved on from the Weber bars because there were so many limitations to those and developed these things called interferometers where you split a laser beam in two you send one arm down about four kilometers in one direction another arm in another four kilometers at a 90 degree angle they hit mirrors they reflect back the signal the light recombines and if there was a change to the length of those arms by a gravitational wave passing through then you would get an interference pattern in the light that the frequencies would be slightly off when they recombined and so that's where ligo came from and now the i'm mentioning these arms are like 4 kilometers long they're trying to find changes in those lengths that are 1 one thousandth the size of an atom like <laughs> Stupid small, insanely, (laughs) insanely small. But, you know, through very precise physics, through very precise, you know, mathematics, data analysis, all of this, we're able to filter out signals. And it's just such a technological challenge in itself that it's just amazing the stuff that they're able to do. And then in 2015, it was announced in 2016, but in 2015, they were getting ready to turn on advanced LIGO where they had improved the technology they had it had been down for five years while they installed new technology i had left the collaboration (laughs) and then they turned these detectors back on and almost immediately got a gravitational wave signal from colliding black holes and since then they have just found dozens and dozens and it's just it's amazing it's amazing for so many reasons because not only did we prove einstein's gravitational wave theory was correct But we have detected space-time itself moving. All the other things that we've detected that have to do with space-time and general relativity are effects of it on things like light and things like massive objects. We haven't ever detected it itself until now. And we detected black holes colliding, (laughs) which has always been theorized, but we had never actually been able to witness something like that happening so it's a whole new field of astronomy um the way i kind of phrase it is that we've been doing astronomy on the electromagnetic spectrum forever for as long as we've been doing astronomy you know with our eyes to telescopes the whole gambit of the electromagnetic spectrum from radio waves up to x-rays and gamma rays um but gravitational waves it's it's isn't sound but it's like hearing the universe for the first time it's it's as if we have just been using our eyes and now we're able to hear the universe for the first time and so the the universe has opened up to us in a whole new way and i'm just so excited to see the sort of stuff that we can detect now that we're able to actually detect and study gravitational waves i'm sorry that was a very long explanation but i hope Uh, that made sense
1: I've told my guests this before and I'm, I'm sure, uh, you, you realize that I have you for a certain amount of time and I am, you know, there, I've always talked, you know, I, 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 like doing the podcast as popular philosophy. It's enjoyable for me as an intellectual, but I, you know, there's a certain selfish aspect where I want the information. <laughs> and I want I want, it, I want you to teach me <laughs> via the questions. Uh, what's, what's going on. Um, uh, on, on that point of you know I want to take a get get your take uh, on um, another uh, popular or a concept that we hear a lot in in science fiction that's actually you know in science uh, to some degree as well um, I'm talking about uh, multiverse, right? Yes. Um, you know, I'm a huge, you know, where I completely geek out, and people say I do that in a lot of areas, but I completely geek out on comic books, always have since I was a little kid, getting them off the comic book rack that long ago um, for, for just years and years and years. And, what you know, Marvel Universe has become so popular, you know, uh, which is, you know, great, uh, great stories, great Graphics, great science fiction, great writing. And in comics, it's almost like this running joke that I'm sure you run into a lot where, you know, characters die, they reappear somewhere else. You know, there's the Spider-Man multiverse with all these great iterations of who Spider-Man is, the nuance Spider-Man, <laughs> you know, the manga Spider-Man, and and on and on. Um, you know, so we encountered this concept, you know, of this multiverse uh in science fiction more and more you know that that we see these movies um what's going on here in is is any of this feasible in science
0: (laughs) yeah the issue i love theory. I'm just putting that out there. I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, the issue scientifically with multiverse theory is that even if we are right about some of them, there's like no way we know how to test it. There's no way we could like actually detect another universe. Um, the big thing to keep in mind is this idea of the cosmological address, right? That we have our star system, our solar system with our star, the sun. And we are one star in the Milky Way galaxy. And that Milky Way galaxy is one galaxy in our local group of galaxies. And then the universe is made up of these groups and clusters of galaxies. The universe is everything. It's like, we can't, we don't know anything beyond our our own universe. We can't detect anything beyond that, our entire understanding of physics. When we say the universe, that's the end all be all. What multiverse theory, there's lots of different flavors of multiverse. You know, you mentioned the comics, that's sort of that infinite universe theory that, and you can dissect lots of different scientific explanations for this. And essentially, what it is is that, you know, we have the Big Bang that created our universe. And what if there's just a lot of big bangs that are going on? So you picture those bubbles, right? That's kind of one visualization for multiple universes that, excuse me, you imagine like a bubble bath, right? You have all of these universes, some bubbles are off by themselves, some are big, some are small, some are just forming, some are dying, some of them are touching each other. And so when you get into shows like Fringe, for example, or, and I think sometimes the comics multiverses talk about this too, there are points where they touch And if you can build a portal to jump between them, then you're able to enter into another universe. And scientifically, what those universes would look like all comes down to chaos theory what your starting conditions are. If there are even slight differences in starting conditions, that can propagate over billions of years to result in a completely different type of universe. So people who study this are looking into those different ways that our universe has changed, what's driven that change, what has resulted You know, as we mentioned in matter over antimatter being the most dominant, what has resulted in our galaxy clusters looking the way they do and how much would another universe look the same way? All super fun to think about. You also get multiverse theory where... you know, you get this quantum multiverse theory that every time you make a decision, you spawn a new universe. Now that violates so much physics. (laughs) Conservation of energy and mass and all of this other stuff. Uh, But that every time we make a decision, there's another universe where you made the other decision. But then if you think of every decision you make throughout your day, multiplied by every person on every planet, it's just, you get into infinity and beyond and it falls apart scientifically pretty fast. My favorite multiverse theory that is near and dear to my heart is something called the dripping black hole theory that basically states that we have these supermassive black holes in our universe. Just we, They're supermassive black holes. They're in the center of galaxies and they're giant. And the theory is, is that these supermassive black holes reach a certain critical mass as stuff is falling into them continuously stuff falls in, they grow in mass, and they reach a critical mass where they give birth to a new universe. So you can kind of picture it if you're thinking of the sheets, the trampolines, and then you get a black hole that's dipping way down to this point. Imagine that another sheet sort of exploding from that black hole. And then that universe starts to form black holes and another one reaches a critical mass. And then that forms a black hole further down. So it's like black holes drip. That's the dripping black hole theory. It's black holes all the way down. Um, And there's many reasons that I love this theory. One is it's, it's not crazy. And it's also, it's not really violating physics in the way that we necessarily (laughs) understand Not really. But it also provides a possible explanation for dark energy, where dark energy is this mysterious presence of energy in our universe that is accelerating our expansion. Our universe is expanding and it's accelerating as it expands. And in order to do that, there has to be something there. It's like trying to inflate a balloon without blowing air into it, right? You have to be blowing air into it. And that's kind of what our dark energy is. And so the theory is is that dark energy here is the matter that's falling into our mother black hole in another universe that's providing this dark energy that's pushing our universe apart which I freaking love. Now there's no way any of this can be proven but I just I love it. It's near and dear to my heart from a storytelling standpoint because it just kind of ticks all the boxes for me. <laughs>
1: yeah, and I just want to I want to make sure I get cuz I think I get it and it, I'm glad you brought up in the the dripping black hole that theory because i i listened to your lectures and i had a note to to Ash because i was i was fascinated but the the bit that i'm hearing you now say is that you have that dynamic which can help form the basis of multiverse but you're also saying that it's possible in developing that theory that that can also provide an explanation for dark energy right that's correct
0: yep for wow. dark energy within our own universe and obviously it's even if we check if we're able to go through and like find maybe a black hole in our own universe that could be the you know birth of another universe further down like a child universe for us if we could measure the amount of matter going into it compared to the amount of matter or the amount of dark energy in our universe, even if we could do all of those and say, well, that was fun. All the numbers check out again, scientifically, that's, that's not proving it. <laughs>
1: we can't claim yeah. that
0: we've now proved other universes exist because you need to actually detect them in order to be able to, to say that you did that. I mean, it's the same as like Einstein's theory of general relativity that We called it a theory of general relativity or general theory of relativity for so long that actually now that we've detected gravitational waves, we detected space time. So it's technically no longer a theory because we were actually able to detect it itself. Um, And that made that transition, even though it has been relied on for so long as as fact and i think this is something that transcends into society as a whole is understanding what science means as a theory is different to what general society colloquialism says is a theory uh
1: and and one one more big concept uh question for you actually there's not one more There's probably another one or two but (laughs) um all right so Uh, Take me, for example, uh, when Back to the Future came out, I was 12 years old. So therefore, uh, I love Back to the Future. I saw it a million times. I'm talking about time travel. Uh, I can't shake myself from the fact that the amount of times that I saw that movie and being the impressionable age of 12. (laughs) You know, there's always this like check, you know, is a consistent with a back to the future uh, understanding of time travel. If I have that for the basis of my understanding, am I in trouble, or do I have a good concept of <laughs> a time I, travel? I think you're okay.
0: I think um, time travel is another beast, like like multiverse theory, that you can start to give yourself a headache pretty quickly if you <laughs> think about it too much. Um, but Essentially, I mean, we live in, I keep throwing out this term space-time, right? The fabric of space-time. We live in a four-dimensional universe that three dimensions are space, uh, forward, back, left, right, up and down. And we can move within those. We have control over our movement within that. Um, But time is a fourth dimension that we do not have control over. And there's mathematical reasons why, you know, you go back to the equations and you just cannot manipulate the time dimension. And that is what limits us to time. Unfortunately, the math got, got us, (laughs) but, uh, you know, you start to open the boxes of paradox, different types of time travel paradoxes and, you know, back to the future is pretty tight storytelling. And there are some great, uh, time travel stories out there that kind of manage to close the loop and make
1: you think you understood it just for a second. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's, I think, I think that's, that, that is my uh, reasonable approximation of understanding. I hold on to it for a few seconds saying, yeah, that made sec, you know, that made sense, you know, that was good enough for, for a little bit. And then it, uh, it kind of, uh, unravels. Um, uh, thanks Aaron. Um, uh, Question about um, uh, leading off as far as the times uh, that we're in, one of the questions I had prepared for you is that with with the, you know, obviously the pandemic uh, coronavirus going on right now, there's a lot of kids that, um, you know, there's a lot of issues that happen when schools are closed Um, here in the state of Oregon. There's a decent chance that, you know, schools will be closed until September, you know, for the remainder of uh, this school year. Um, and I know myself, I've, you know, put together for my little guy, you know, some, some different, uh, you know, science programs and just little bits and pieces, you know, to keep his mind active and, and to be exploring new ideas. Do you have any, uh, you know, ideas, helpful, um, resources, um, you know, for learning, for kids, uh, you know, be able to access. I know you do your, you explain the universe, um, <laughs> your, your show, and I certainly want you to mention that, but I just wanted to know if you had some ideas you know, in this realm.
0: Yeah, one one I, I really like, and I don't know how prevalent it is because I went to this university, I did my undergraduate there, but there's a website that is called, um, basically it's just called FET, uh, P-H-E-T, .colorado.edu and it's from the University of Colorado and they have many simulations that you can do from a computer they're just like javascript style simulations that cover physics chemistry math earth sciences and biology and they're all very intuitive they're these types of interfaces where if you're learning about friction changing the friction coefficient or changing the angle that your something is sliding down or you know playing with prisms that when you don't have the resources to a, for a lab this is a great substitute for that so it's fet.colorado.edu fet, is a is a great one that I can highly recommend um i know there's a lot of people who are kind of turning to youtube for for resources right now which is great i would just caution that uh, making sure that the people posting these YouTube channels have a background in some form of science education.
1: <laughs> sure, sure, a- yeah.
0: anyone can post a YouTube <laughs> video. Um, so, you know, just take it with a grain of salt. There's still, there's some fantastic science communicators out there who are wonderful at what they do and have posted some great videos. And um, but yeah, everyone's kind of getting creative these days. It's it has been difficult and I just I can't imagine the burden for so many people trying to manage not just their job but their job, they're now homeschooling and having to do all of this in the middle of a very distressing crisis that's going on in our world right now is very, very difficult. Uh, one thing that I've tried to do that I've started doing was um, an astronomy club on Friday afternoons. So I'm doing these on Friday at 1 p.m. I put them on my Twitch page. So if they're kids with parents, parents can sit there with them. It's But it's live interaction, and I go through planetarium software and just answer questions for people. I think we had some questions on Jovian moon, so I'm going to do that this week. And then I post them to my YouTube channel afterwards. So and uh, so there's there is a lot of stuff out there, but it does take a little bit of digging. But I would highly recommend that FET.colorado.edu. It's a very, very good resource.
1: Yeah, thank you. I hadn't heard of that and I, I really appreciate uh really appreciate that that recommendation. Um Aaron, i i wanted to open it up here at, at the end um as you know i listened to your uh, great courses it was available through uh audible uh very very blessed to have you on on the program and uh, really appreciate you taking the time uh, for 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 the listeners of the podcast um What are ways they can interact with, you know, the work that you do, the things that you create, the research that you do, um, the programs that you put out? How can how can listeners interact with um, the things that are important to you?
0: Yeah, the easiest way to find me is on Twitter. I'm at Dr. Aaron Mack, D-R-E-R-I-N-M-A-C. You can also check out my website, which is DrAaronMack.com. And those will you can ask me any questions on Twitter. I'm always happy to answer. And then my website also connects to my Patreon, my Twitch, all of those other ways. I'm always happy to answer questions. You can feel free to contact me through the website. If you have anything specific that people need. And once we're through all of this, uh, I will be appearing at local. I usually give talks at local conventions. So if you have a pop culture convention in your town that you would like me to go to, to teach the science behind x y and z i am always happy to please feel free to reach out if if you're interested uh
1: yeah thank you erin mcdonald as i said before earlier in the podcast for one we'll dedicate this one podcast as the more something than uh, (laughs) anti-something podcast dedicated to dr erin mcdonald uh erin thank you so much for your time i get to tell you like i said for my selfish reasons of being able to uh uh ask you some some great questions about um, you know science and philosophy and art i just want to let you know that i really appreciate uh you know your willingness to spend this time and um really appreciated you taking the time to uh, appear on the podcast
0: thank you i have really enjoyed this it's been fun to kind of think artistically and philosophically for a little while so thank you again
1: uh, dr erin mcdonald uh Have a great day and thanks again. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You are listening to Something Rather Than Nothing.